Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, December 21st, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's top stories. Lawmakers unveil a $1.7 trillion government funding bill to avert a shutdown. The Taliban ban women from universities in Afghanistan. Putin tells Russian security services to root out traitors and spies. South Africa's Ramaphosa is re-elected leader of the ruling ANC party. Carrie Lake's lawsuit challenging the Arizona midterm results heads to trial. FTX's Bankman-Fried is reportedly set to agree to U.S. extradition. A Palestinian prisoner and cancer patient dies in Israeli custody. A former Nazi secretary is convicted in a German court. Puerto Rican cities file a racketeering suit against oil companies. And Stanford releases a new guide to eliminate harmful language. In our first story today, a bipartisan $1.7 trillion bill seeks to avoid a U.S. government shutdown. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Politico, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and NPR Online News. A bipartisan group of lawmakers on Capitol Hill has unveiled a $1.7 trillion funding package for the 2023 fiscal year that seeks to avert a government shutdown. A shutdown is set to occur on Friday if the bill fails to pass. The sprawling legislation includes a 10% increase to defense spending, with $858 billion secured and $772 billion for non-military domestic programs, amounting to a 5% boost. Additional pandemic aid requested by the Biden administration was among the programs left out. The bill, announced Tuesday, is expected to pass a Senate vote before being sent to the House for approval and then to President Biden for his signature. The general sentiment among lawmakers is that the bill will be passed in time, but frustrations about transparency have also been expressed given the rushed time frame. The bill also includes a reform of the 1887 Electoral Count Act. The much-discussed ban of TikTok on federal devices is also included. Democratic lawmakers are touting inclusions such as increased funding for veterans' health care. Meanwhile, Republicans are claiming victory over keeping domestic spending under the rate of inflation. At least 10 Republican senators are needed to pass the bill before it's sent to the Democratic-controlled House. And while GOP opposition has been voiced against the efforts to pass the 4,000-page bill on short notice, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell expressed confidence in the passage of the legislation. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts, and here are our narrative spins. Here's a Republican narrative from Red State. While increased funding for the military and checks on wasteful and domestic spending ought to be applauded, the GOP should not have supported the passage of this bloated bill that was rammed through a lame-duck Democratic session. While it wouldn't be pretty, a government shutdown would be preferable if it means that the incoming Republican-controlled House can save Americans from Biden's unchecked wastefulness. And the Democratic narrative is provided by NBC News. The passing of this legislation would be a big win for democracy, as the bipartisan reform of the Electoral Count Act would stop Trump and other reckless leaders from attempting to undermine the Constitution, making the nation safer from tyranny in the process. 
Democrats should celebrate securing funding for the U.S.'s allies overseas, government programs for everyday Americans, and most importantly, passing a budget before obstructionist Republicans take control of the House. And on this political story, we also have a cynical narrative from Reason. In a skillful piece of political theater, both Democrats and Republicans get to declare victory for an enormous inflationary spending bill. Taxpayers will have to pick up the tab. 4,000 pages of spending increases rammed through both houses. These mountains of cash are being shoveled into bloated government agencies with reckless abandon. As irrelevant policy measures are snuck into a piece of legislation, no lawmaker will actually read. How much uh, patience do you have for uh, these government shutdowns and this type of political uh, maneuvering? Oh, I think like negative zero. It, it, yeah. it always it's such a it's such a carrot for the media, right? Oh, we might shut down because we can't agree on it. So that puts the pressure on the other party. It's kind and of in like, that party's uh, mind. It puts the pressure on the other party. Right. I understand there's always going to be philosophical differences between the sides. But wouldn't it be interesting if these people who we elected voted and then whichever side won, they all got behind whatever won, just like we have to with the elected officials? That'd be interesting. The Taliban closes universities to women in Afghanistan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNN, I-24 News, DW, and The Guardian. A spokesman for the Taliban-led Afghan Ministry of Higher Education confirmed to CNN on Tuesday that the government has suspended university education for all female students in Afghanistan. The higher education minister stated in a letter that this move restricting women's access to formal education is until further notice, with reports expecting it to take effect immediately. The ban on higher education comes less than three months after thousands of women took university entrance exams across the country, though sweeping regulations limited what subjects they could study. U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price pointed out that the latest suspension will have significant consequences for the Taliban and further alienate it from the international community, as the U.N. Security Council met in New York to discuss Afghanistan. Since the Taliban took over Afghanistan in August of 2021, universities have been required to gender-segregate classrooms, and women could only be taught by female professors or older men, while most teenage girls have been banned from secondary school education. The Taliban has been implementing other strict rules since its takeover, including requiring women to fully cover themselves in public and banning them from many government jobs, measures that have been criticized by the U.N. and the international community. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. We've got a few narrative spins, believe it or not, and the first one is an establishment critical narrative, and that comes from the Kama Press News Agency. The Taliban is committed to respecting women's rights as defined by the Islamic Sharia laws, not by secular customs opposed by the so-called international community. Female students will be allowed access to formal education once a decent cultural and religious environment has been created in Afghanistan. NPR brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Barring women from higher education is a step in the wrong direction for the Taliban. The choice is guaranteed to hurt the group's efforts to receive international donations at a time when the country is deep in an ever-worsening humanitarian crisis. The Taliban cannot expect to be a legitimate member of the international community until they respect the rights of all Afghans. 
We reach day 300 of the conflict in Ukraine, and Putin tells security services to root out traitors and spies. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Guardian, Ukraine Forum, and Pravda. Speaking on Monday, which also saw the celebration of Russia's Security Services Day across the country, President Vladimir Putin ordered the strengthening of Russia's borders and called on his intelligence agencies to maximize use of their operational, technical, and personnel potential. This was followed by comments made by Putin on Tuesday, suggesting the organization should step up measures to root out traitors, spies, and saboteurs. Referring to the regions of Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia, which Russia claimed to have annexed in September, despite Western countries arguing that the annexations were illegitimate, Putin described the situation there as extremely difficult. He also claimed that people living there, Russian citizens, hold out hope for you, for your protection. His words came on the second of a three-day trip to Belarus, where Putin is reportedly seeking to shore up alliances with President Alexander Lukashenko, Putin has said of relationships with the head of Belarus, we agreed to continue to take all necessary measures together to ensure the security of our two countries. Additionally, the Kremlin leader said the nations will continue the practice of regular joint exercises and other operational and combat training activities. Elsewhere, Russia and China are set to kick off a week of joint naval exercises in the East China Sea on Wednesday. A statement from China's People's Liberation Army, or PLA, has said, This joint exercise is directed at demonstrating the determination and capability of the two sides to jointly respond to maritime security threats. On the ground, Russian attacks continued to be reported in the regions of Donetsk, Dnipropetrovsk, Kharkiv, Kherson, and Sumy. Ukrainian officials said three civilians were killed and five more were injured in Donetsk, while two civilians were killed and three more were injured in Kherson. In Ukrainian attacks, the Russian border region of Belgorod was shelled on Tuesday, reportedly injuring one civilian. A Ukrainian attack also reportedly struck a hospital in the city of Donetsk, though there were no reports of civilian casualties at this stage. Thanks for those facts. On this uh, 300-day anniversary of the conflict in Ukraine, we have an anti-Russia narrative from the Daily Beast. Putin knows Russia is losing the war and is panicking. The Russian leader is clearly paranoid and believes anyone who wants to promote peace is a spy or traitor. Russian propagandists may argue that the country is operating from a position of strength, but they are shaking in their boots. And the pro-Russia narrative is provided by RT. NATO and the U.S., which have ignored Russia's security concerns by breaking its promise not to expand eastward in return for German reunification, are coordinating to impose their dominance, and Putin, knowing what's at stake, is taking the lead to make sure his security leaders do too. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction Community. This one says there's a 95% chance that Vladimir Putin will be the president of the Russian Federation by February 1st of 2023. I don't think that there's any elections between uh, now and February of this coming year. I imagine that 5% is him being deposed or perhaps being assassinated, right? I think that's what they're going with. It seems like uh, very unlikely that he's going anywhere. 
Ramaphosa is re-elected as leader of South Africa's ruling ANC party. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Financial Times, Al Jazeera, and The Guardian. South Africa's ruling African National Congress, or ANC, announced on Monday that the country's president, Cyril Ramaphosa, has been re-elected leader of the party following the ANC National Elective Conference, which began on Friday. He garnered 2,476 votes of the 4,384 cast at the conference to beat his former health minister and rival for the position, Zweli McKees. The results mean that Ramaphosa, who also won four out of the other six positions in the party's leadership team, will guide the ANC for the next five years. The victory also makes Ramaphosa the frontrunner to secure a second term in office ahead of the 2024 presidential elections. The chosen leaders of the ANC have been elected president in all South African elections since 1994. Ramaphosa's path to re-election was not without problems as he struggled with internal divisions in the ANC during his campaign. He also came close to resigning this month following a panel report to South Africa's parliament that accused him of serious misconduct over the 2020 Pala Pala robbery. Ramaphosa, along with the newly elected ANC leadership, has many challenges to address as the country is experiencing reports of widespread corruption, power cuts of more than seven hours a day, and an unemployment rate of 35%. Though the ANC is expected to lose its long-established majority in the 2024 general elections due to its recent loss of support in towns and cities, Ramaphosa is likely to remain president in any coalition government. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. We'll start the spins with Narrative A. This is written by Business Live. The ANC has shown its steadfast support for Ramaphosa, giving him a bigger win than he achieved in 2017, despite the recent scandal at his game farm. He must now avoid focusing too much on problems within his party and instead start to govern on behalf of the entire nation amid this severe energy crisis. And the Mail and Guardian brings us Narrative B. Ramaphosa has won the presidency of the ANC, but he won't necessarily be able to resolve internal party divisions or put forward his renewal project for the party. The political culture of the organization is toxic, and conflicts between his faction and that of the Radical Economic Transformation Group have only deepened during the conference. These political circumstances will act as an unyielding barrier to effective leadership and governance. Lake's Arizona election lawsuit heads to trial. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The Washington Examiner, ABC, and The Daily Mail. A Maricopa County, Arizona Superior Court judge on Monday allowed Republican gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake's lawsuit challenging the election's results to go to trial on claims involving alleged issues with the voting machines and ballot chain of custody violations. After throwing out eight claims, Judge Peter Thompson ruled he was allowing Lake to try to prove that printer malfunctions were intentional and affected the results. In addition, her team can attempt to prove the lack of chain of custody was both intentional and did in fact result in a changed outcome. Lake, who lost to Democratic Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs by 17,000 votes out of 2.6 million, will present her case Wednesday and Thursday after Lake's representative examines 150 ballots Tuesday. Regarding chain of custody, 
Lake claims the protocol around tracking who had the ballots was not followed and also alleges some ballots were added by staffers from Runbeck Election Service, the company that printed the ballots. Because Hobbs will hold her current Secretary of State position until she's sworn in as governor, Thompson ruled she could be called to testify. Hobbs' attorney suggested the hearing was a victory for them, given that most of the claims were dismissed. In opposition to what Lake's team claims, Maricopa County's attorney argued during Monday's hearing that affidavits from voters prove that most were able to cast their ballots, despite longer lines, and there's no evidence to support claims of misconduct. Thanks for those facts. Believe it or not, Melissa, we have a Republican and a Democratic narrative on this political story. PJ Media provides us with a Republican narrative. Hobbs thought she could get away with these election irregularities without facing pushback, but Lake isn't going down without a fight. Arizona has endured widespread election issues recently. She may not win, but these hearings will give Lake and voters who feel disenfranchised a chance to take the stand and speak up. Due process can now play out. And the Democratic narrative is provided by Arizona Central. After ranting and tweeting endlessly to her voters about election fraud and asking her supporters to foot the bill for her legal actions, Lake will now get her day in court. She's told her supporters to buckle up for victory, but she needs to provide actual evidence there was indeed a conspiracy to tamper with votes, or she could face court sanctions in addition to defeat. I would like to propose... So it turns out maybe the blockchain isn't the best. Uh, We're going to see in our next story, cryptocurrency isn't the future, perhaps. (laughs) Um, But the blockchain technology, people always talk about like, well, maybe the blockchain can be used for something. Why not these elections? It's an electronic way to keep track of every single vote with like a mathematical equation. Um, And then if there's any issues with it, every single thing is tracked on the blockchain. Shouldn't maybe the blockchain would solve our election discussions? Scott, that's brilliant. I think you might have just solved America's voting problem. (sighs) You're welcome, people. FTX's Bankman Freed agrees to U.S. extradition. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, NBC News, Reuters, the Nassau Guardian, and Forbes. In a surprise turn of events, the co-founder and former CEO of crypto exchange FTX, Sam Bankman Freed, has reportedly waived his right not to be extradited to the U.S. over fraud charges. It followed confusion on Monday after the 30-year-old appeared in court in the Bahamian capital of Nassau, where he's being detained, and told the judge he didn't consent to waive his right to fight extradition. Reports prior to the hearing said he would do so. At the hearing, a lawyer for Bankman Freed said his client wanted to see the U.S. indictment before agreeing to extradition. As such, the hearing ended without a conclusion, and Bankman Freed was remanded back to the Fox Hill prison. Reuters report that the crypto mogul has now consented came several hours after the court hearing. Once this is confirmed in court, it paves the way for one of the biggest white-collar criminal trials since the prosecution of Bernie Madoff. After he was arrested in the Bahamas on December 12th, Bankman Freed was indicted in New York federal court on eight counts of wire fraud conspiracy to commit wire fraud, and violations of campaign finance laws. If convicted, he faces up to 115 years in prison. He resigned as FTX CEO and the company filed for bankruptcy on November 11th after clients sought to withdraw their funds in droves 
after reports suggested deposits had been placed with their sister company, Alameda Research, without customers' consent, leaving it largely insolvent. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on this story. We'll start the spins with Narrative A from The New Yorker. According to the government's account, Bankman Freed's corruption was baked into FTX's processes from the very start of its operation. Whether he was dishonest, deluded, or both, the U.S. government needs to conduct the most thorough investigation and prosecution of this fraudulent crypto billionaire. And Narrative B comes from Slate. Among the charges that Bankman-Fried faces are those of campaign finance violations going up to tens of millions of dollars. These donations went to the highest level of leadership in both the Democratic and Republican parties, which begs the question, did these political elites know where their high-dollar donations were coming from? And what will happen to all that money? Okay, I know we're a podcast, but if you don't know what Sam Bankman-Fried looks like, Go look at him, and if you're a millennial or if you watch Parks and Recreation and you don't know who John Ralphio is, I'm telling you, he looks just like him. So, and that actor, Ben Schwartz, he's got to be chomping at the bits, like, who's going to write the Netflix movie so I can play Sam Bankman-Fried? He just looks like him. It's just He just looks the same. It's yeah, just a looks, doppelganger, yeah. He looks just like John Ralphio. A Palestinian prisoner and cancer patient dies in Israeli custody. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Fox News, the Associated Press, and Al Jazeera. On Tuesday, Nasser Abu Hamid, a senior Palestinian fighter sentenced to life in jail by Israel, died of cancer, prompting outrage and mourning among Palestinians. Abu Hamid is a former leader of the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, which is the armed wing of Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas's Fatah party. He was sentenced to seven life sentences in 2002 for participating in the deaths of seven Israelis in the Second Intifada. Hundreds of Palestinians took to the streets and stores closed across the West Bank to protest Abu Hamid's death. Palestinian groups have called for a general strike and confrontations with Israeli forces. Abu Hamid was diagnosed with an advanced stage of lung cancer in August of 2021. Palestinian rights groups, as well as Mahmoud Abbas, have claimed that Israeli authorities neglected his condition and did not give him sufficient treatment. Abu Hamid was mentioned by Abbas in his speech to the UN General Assembly in September, saying that Palestinians were telling the heroic prisoner Nasser Abu Hamid and his companions that dawn is coming and it's time for their chains to be broken. This year has been one of the deadliest years in the conflict since the Second Intifada. A negotiated settlement appears to be increasingly unlikely. The pro-Palestine narrative on this story comes from Middle East Eye. Israeli authorities purposefully neglected Abu Hamid due to his involvement in resistance to Israel's violent occupation. Abu Hamid is yet another martyr to die at Israel's hands because of their cruelty. Israel's systematic and deliberate killing of Palestinian prisoners is well known, and the international community must intervene to prevent Israel from continuing these abuses. And the Times of Israel brings us a pro-Israel narrative. Abu Hamid was a mass-murdering terrorist, plain and simple, yet Israel still provided him a level of decency. He was involved in the murder of multiple Israelis as well as Palestinians, 
Accusations that Israel neglected Abu Hamid are also preposterous, as the relevant officials went out of their way to provide him with care. As uh, many frustrated and unsuccessful improvisers do, I was watching SNL uh, this weekend, and uh, they had uh, Austin Butler on, the Elvis guy. Mm. And they did a sketch. Did you see? Did you happen to see it? I didn't. They did a sketch. Well, you're a better improviser than me. They did a sketch, <laughs> Jewish Elvis, like it was it was play up with some playful stereotypes about Jewish Elvis playing off that, you know, he was Elvis in the movie. Yeah. And one of the Jewish stereotypes was that they like Diet Coke a lot. I didn't know. Are you familiar with that being a, a Jewish thing, a di- Diet Coke? Is there some tie to Diet Coke? I, I don't know. That's that's kind of news to me. It's not very healthy, right? Diet soda is actually, is that, no, is it true that diet yeah. soda is like worse than regular soda or is that? Well, I mean, you, you take the real sugar and you get diabetes or you drink the fake sugar and you get cancer. What do you, what are you drinking? You're a health, you're a healthy person. You're a health professional. What, what are you drinking when you're not just drinking water? What, what do you like? I'm drinking a bubbly water. I'm drinking sparkling water, like a true white millennial. Yeah. What's your like, favorite, what's your favorite LaCroix flavor? I'm a pample. Apricot, guy. like straight apricot. Up apricot. Absolutely. Oh. It's so good. I'll have to try it. Have you had the spin drifts? Oh, those are nice. And Get they have kind nice... of a little bit more flavor in them. Yeah, they, they have squeeze like actual real little like bit of juice. limes in there. Yeah. It's that's... not just someone thought about a fruit. And... <laughs> right. So my sister-in-law says um, uh, when her 10-year-old asked her, like, what is, what's it like? What's it taste like? She's like, well, it's like someone, someone ate a mango and then burped in your face. A former Nazi secretary is convicted by a German court. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, NBC News, CNN, The New York Times, and Voice of America. In what could be the final trial of its kind, a 97-year-old female former secretary at a Nazi concentration camp was found guilty in a German court on Tuesday of being an accessory in the murder of over 10,000 people during the Holocaust. Ermgard Ferkner, nicknamed the Secretary of Evil by German media, was sentenced to two years in prison in a landmark trial for her role in helping run the Stutthof concentration camp. As Ferkner was 18 and 19 at the time, the 97-year-old's trial took place before a juvenile court, and her sentence will see her placed on juvenile probation, the court confirmed. The prosecutors were not able to link her to any specific murders, but they did prove that she willingly supported the running of the camp by fulfilling her duties as secretary. Ferkner's defense lawyers had asked for their client to be acquitted and argued the prosecution's evidence did not prove beyond doubt that she had known about the killings. In the closing statement, Ferkner said she was sorry and regretted being at Stutthof. In post-war Germany, Ferkner had been the prosecutor's witness testifying at trials of Nazi war criminals, including one that led to the conviction of her boss, Camp Commander Paul Werner Hopp. Narrative A on this story comes from the Daily Mail. While those responsible for the Holocaust should rightfully be held to account, it's unclear just how much justice victims and families will truly get by convicting perpetrators who either don't have to serve their sentences because of their advanced age or receive lenient ones, such as in this case. It's time to consider alternative but equally promising ways of dealing with unresolved Holocaust crimes. And the Simon Wiesenthal Center brings us Narrative B. 
Trials like this are vital to keeping the tragedy of the Holocaust in our collective memories, and they send an important signal reaffirming the political and moral responsibility of individuals in authoritarian regimes. This is especially true in this case, as the role played by female Nazi war criminals is often overlooked. So I was listening to NPR today, too, around lunchtime, and they were talking about the story and how uh, the the journalist went to Stutthof uh, and had a tour and uh, saw the concentration camp and saw where this where the office was, I guess, and um, Gosh. Uh, where the secretary would have sat. And she had a window view of a nice garden. And then beyond that, um, like the, where the prisoners were held. Um, so she could definitely see where the crematorium was. So the, oh my gosh. She, they just kept saying she would have been able to see what was going on and smell burning flesh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you know what's going on. My, in my experience, the secretaries and the office managers are the people that know the most about what's going on at these places. The people in oh, charge yeah. sometimes are clueless. And I don't mean these places as in a concentration camp. I mean any place of work. I mean, look at even like Mad Men. Joan knew what was up. Right. Puerto Rican cities are filing a racketeering suit against oil companies. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Tag24, and Reuters. 16 Puerto Rican municipalities have filed a lawsuit alleging multinational oil and coal companies conspired to deceive the public about climate change, specifically aiming to hold them accountable for the damage done by Hurricanes Irma and Maria in 2017. In a first-for-climate civil suit, the plaintiffs are using the 1970 Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations, or RICO, Act to assert that the fossil fuel industry, trade associations, think tanks, and others obfuscated the link between greenhouse gas-emitting fuels and climate change. The fossil fuel companies, including ExxonMobil, Shell, and BP, are accused of formulating their plan to deceive the public dating back to the 1989 Global Climate Coalition, which the lawsuit claims bolstered the fossil fuel industry through false information disseminated to the public. There were six major hurricanes and over 12 named storms during the 2017 Atlantic hurricane season which caused at least $294 billion in damage to Puerto Rico. The alleged conspiracy by companies makes the island the ultimate victim of global warming, according to one of the municipality's attorneys. In the past, RICO laws had mostly been used to criminally pursue entities like the mafia, motorcycle gangs, and international purveyors of fraud. But recently, there has been more civil use of the statutes to hold corporations accountable. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. EcoWatch brings us Narrative A. It's going to be difficult for the fossil fuel companies to deny these charges when there's an actual Shell internal report predicting a suit like this could come in the future. There are numerous threads to this industry's deception, including the funding of think tanks that would produce favorable studies and the creation of lobbying groups that existed solely for the industry's benefit. It's about time the industry was held accountable. Narrative B is written by The Hill. These preposterous lawsuits are a desperate attempt to get a select handful of companies to pay for catastrophes that have resulted from decades of activity by numerous entities across the globe or simply natural causes. 
It's a waste of money to sue rather than focus on the collaborative efforts being made by the industry with other groups to combat climate change in a meaningful way. It's funny that it's Rico. <laughs> oh, Rico. Oh, I get it. Oh, Puerto my gosh. Rico. Get it? Wow. I feel like kind of like how some movies, you you know, that they came up with the title first and then they came up with the movie. I feel like yeah. they heard about these Rico acts like we got to we got to use one. Let's of these check things. this out. Yeah. Yeah. And our final story, Stanford releases a guide to eliminate harmful language. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Express, Independent, New York Post, Daily Mail and The Wall Street Journal. California's Stanford University has published its Elimination of Harmful Language Initiative, an index of so-called harmful language it plans on deleting from the school's website and computer code. It also includes a list of replacement terms. The index has 10 language sections, including ableist, ageist, colonialist, culturally appropriative, gender-based, imprecise, institutionally racist, and person-first words. Among the words are American, to be replaced with U.S. citizen, immigrant, to be replaced with person who has immigrated or non-citizen, and walk-in hours, to be swapped with open hours, so as to include people with disabilities. The school added that the phrase beating a dead horse should also go away because it normalizes violence against animals. The term abort is to be replaced with cancel or end due to moral concerns. And the word Karen will be replaced with demanding or entitled white woman. Under its racial category, words like black hat or black sheep are to be scrapped due to negative connotations to the color black. Under the gender category, preferred pronouns should become pronouns because the guide alleges the former implies that gender is a choice and the words freshman or congressman should go because they exclude women. The ableism category includes blind review, which it says should be replaced with anonymous review. Initially announced in May, the guide gained traction on social media on Monday and has since been removed from public view. Well, believe it or not, we've got some opinions or some narratives on this story, Scott. The first one comes from the Stanford University website. Stanford University is a diverse, inclusive, and highly respected institution of higher learning, which is why it has taken steps to redesign its website to that effect. Though small linguistic changes like these may seem inconsequential, they can have a monumentally positive impact on the communities that have historically been put down by the use of biased language. This is a welcome gesture. And Stanford's independent newspaper, the Stanford Review, brings us a right narrative. While Stanford claims to be fighting for the disenfranchised through this new initiative, what it's really doing is implementing big brother tactics that ironically have long been used to silence the marginalized. No matter your race or gender, the best way to combat this is by speaking your mind uninhibited by administrative rules and exposing what a mockery of education and freedom this university's Orwellian guide is. What do you make of the fact that it was taken, that this guide was taken off a of public view? That's really interesting. This sort of thing, I see both sides. I really feel like they, I am so split. There's part of me that's like, this is so ridiculous. I never, yeah, I'm not, because I'm not used to speaking that way. And then the other side of me is like, what's wrong with that? This is such a little thing we can do to empathize with people. 
who have been feeling marginalized. You know, it's it, I really I do see both sides. Yeah, I do too. Right. It, what's the harm in making some of these changes? Um, it's also interesting, like, what is language? If you want to dig back far enough, like so many words or different things have some sort of basis in something that's not pleasant to think about or not pleasant to have happened. Right. There's got to be a balance that we can strike as a culture of this takes into account, is sensitive to people who've been marginalized. And then on the flip side, can we not? Right. If someone says or does the wrong thing with the right intentions, can we not? Uh, Can we not punish people for getting it wrong? Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, December 21st, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. 